I now invite your attention to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. And at verse 5, we read these words. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. So Psalm 86, it's on page 635 and verse 5. This psalm is a prayer of David and this verse, verse 5, stands out as a bright shining gem of the gospel. These Old Testament believers, David in particular, were gospel men, weren't they? They loved the gospel. Christ was in their hearts by faith. We know that from Romans chapter 8. For if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And the Old Testament saints were living in the realization of forgiveness of sins through the coming Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their knowledge wasn't as full and as copious as ours might be with New Testament revelation in our possession, but nevertheless they were saved by looking ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in these verses leading up to our text you notice the flow of thought of David he prays that God will bow down his ear to him, to hear him, for he feels to be poor and needy. Not poor in a monetary sense, because he was one of the richest people on earth. But he was poor in spirit. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He asked God to preserve him, for I am holy. Don't misunderstand what David is saying. He's not saying he's sinless. He knows that not, that's not the case, but holy in the sense of being set apart for holy use, one whom God owns and honours, and he is trusting in the Lord. Verse 3, praying for God's mercy, and daily he was praying for that blessing. And verse 4, he wanted the joy of salvation, and uh, he was lifting up his soul heavenward. And then we come then to verse 5, 4, this is the reason why he's praying like that, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. So we have before us the plain gospel, the one and only true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, because such verses as this point forward to him. David knew that salvation didn't come through offerings of lambs and of bullocks and of pigeons and doves and so on. He knew that they were just types and shadows and pictures of better things, he was better taught than imagining somehow by the mere performance of these things that he would be accepted of God. He was looking ahead then to Christ who was yet to come. So you could say this is the gospel according to St. David. An Old Testament saint sometimes had a very distinctive understanding of the central truths of the gospel. We're going to notice this verse under three headings. Now, first of all, we will notice that forgiveness of sin is available. What a wonderful truth that is. Forgiveness of sin is available. The verse tells us directly, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. There's a readiness with God. He's done all things necessary to make forgiveness available. And you will be aware that the apostles loved to preach these things. As they went around from place to place, they declared these things so clearly and so plainly. An outstanding example is of the Apostle Paul in Antioch in Pisidia. There were two Antiochs, by the way. This was Antioch in Pisidia. 
he went into the synagogue. First he began to reason with the Jews and he was asked if he could uh, give a few words. So he, in a masterful way, he takes them through the Old Testament prophecies concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews, of course, would have known these things. They were anticipating the Messiah, but hadn't believed that Christ was the Messiah. And so skillfully he starts to direct them to the way in which the prophecies have been fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ through his arrest, through his sufferings, through his death, and through his glorious resurrection, the Old Testament scriptures were accomplished. Christ has performed salvation, he was telling them. But then he comes to the climactic point of his sermon by saying that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. It's like the crown jewels of the gospel, isn't it? Forgiveness of sins. Uh, British crown jewels are usually firmly under lock and key in the Tower of London, aren't they? Only come out on very special occasions. This year, of course, being an exception. But the crown jewels of the gospel are not under lock and key, are they? They're to be freely made known. God, by his Spirit, is freely dispensing the blessings of salvation to those who feel their need of forgiveness. They are welcome to come and obtain it. And... Uh, it's the greatest treasure of all time, far, far more valuable than any earthly treasures, this free forgiveness through our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we really come to understand and appreciate the wonder of forgiveness, we have to understand, first of all, something of the awfulness of sin, the seriousness of sin, that sin is an offence, a deep offence against a holy God. He is grieved and offended by our sin, not because he's easily offended, but simply because our sin is a contradiction of his holiness. And he has revealed to us his holy requirements and his perfect standards, summarized by the Ten Commandments. And those commandments reveal to us something of what the Lord expects of us, that he is revealing something of himself to us, that he alone is to be worshipped and we fall short of his perfect standard. Christ summarized the law by saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. But we haven't, have we? We haven't loved the Lord with all our strength and all our mind. And uh, we may have had, in an unconverted state, certain sentimental thoughts about God, perhaps, in a childish kind of way, perhaps some of us did but no true love from the heart to the living God. Neither have we loved our neighbours as ourselves. We may have been kind to our neighbours sometimes, but we thought more of ourselves than we've really thought about our neighbours. And so we have come short of God's perfect standard. The Lord doesn't expect these things just now and again. He expects this 24-7. It's an ongoing requirement. And therefore we are sinners because we have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And sin has affected every part of us, hasn't it? Our mind, we sin in our minds, our thought life. Don't forget that thoughts are words to God. No one else may have to read your thoughts, but God reads your thoughts as if they are spoken words. You can't hide anything from God. And it may be Proud thoughts, it may be lustful thoughts, it may be unkind thoughts, it may be covetous thoughts. And so we could go on describing various thoughts that 
pass through people's minds and the Lord knows all about these things. Sin has affected our soul. Our soul has become unclean. By nature our soul is dead in trespasses and in sins. Sin affects our lives, the way we behave, the things we say and the places we go perhaps. Sin affects us in all these things. In other words, we're out of fellowship with God, as if we're in a far country and far distant from him, alienated from the life of God. This is very serious, isn't it? The Holy Spirit has to impress these things upon us before we really understand the seriousness of sin. Now, because the soul is invisible, it's very difficult for us to really grasp or comprehend the seriousness of sin and its effect upon us. So God has employed by his Spirit a figure of speech that is very telling. In Isaiah chapter 1, uh, verse 5, it says this, and the illustration is that of a wounded body. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. I think the figure is quite clear, isn't it? You think of someone very seriously injured. They're hemorrhaging, cuts and bruises all over their bodies. And these, these bruises and these wounds have started to corrupt. They're putrefying. And as you know, when wounds putrefy, they start to smell bad, don't they? And this is the picture of our spiritual state and condition. Transfer this thought to our spiritual condition, then you start to understand the serious effects of sin upon us. That's how God sees us, our wretched and ruined condition in the sight of a holy God. So we cannot understand the wonder of forgiveness until we, until we really start to grasp the seriousness and the consequences of our sin in the sight of God. But the wonder is this, that God has made a way whereby sin can be forgiven. And it costs, it costs so much. It costs the Father his Son. He sent that which was dearest to his own heart into this sin-cursed world. He became a man that he might uh, live a spotless life and suffer in that humanity as a substitute for sinners. It costs Christ the pain and condemnation of the Holy Father the wrath revealed in God's law was poured out upon him as he stood as the sin-bearer. It cost him tears and toil and sweat and pain, a broken heart. Who can begin to comprehend the sufferings of Christ, these substitutionary sufferings on behalf of others as he went from Gethsemane to the judgment hall, from the judgment hall to Calvary, and there he laid down his life, a ransom for many. What he endured, no tongue can tell, to save our souls from death and hell. It's the Holy Spirit who impresses then upon our hearts the seriousness of sin and the cost of salvation. Our eyes are open to this amazing exchange of places. Jesus taking the sinner's place. The guilt of sin being imputed to him and his righteousness being imputed to the believing sinner. He who knew no sin was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is a truth to be proclaimed far and wide. Christ, the risen Saviour, he instructed his disciples, commissioned them 
to go forth, beginning at Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. This gospel is to be proclaimed. And this is still the commission of God's people today, isn't it? That's why we support missions, isn't it? Why we're interested in the work of God elsewhere, because we want other people to hear these things as well. Perhaps they've never had these things before in some parts of the world. That is the case in some remote places. They've never heard of Jesus. They've never heard of a way of salvation. They've never seen one page of a Bible. And yet we have so many Bibles. Some of us have perhaps a dozen Bibles at home. And there are some who have no Bible at all. Never heard of these things before. Well, this is to be proclaimed. And Christ commissioned it should be so. Wherever the apostles went, they couldn't help but speak of Jesus. They couldn't help but speak of his accomplishments, of his glorious resurrection, his victory over sin and over death, and the glorious blessings and benefits of the work of the cross, free forgiveness of sin. They went around blowing the gospel trumpet. You think of heralds in olden times here in this country when a message perhaps from the king was to be made known they'd send these heralds to various parts of the land and they'd pull up in village centres or town market squares and they'd uh, have perhaps in a written form read out this message from the king they might blow a trumpet to gain people's attention they'd gather round and then they would impart to them the message of the king and this is how the gospel is to be proclaimed isn't it that Christ is to be uh, made known. He is to be spoken of well. And this gospel message must be a clear, distinct message. Free forgiveness of sins to those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So forgiveness is available. What a wonderful truth that is. I trust it rejoices your heart to know that forgiveness is available. But we just move on to notice that something of the reality of forgiveness. And God in his word has employed certain figures of speech to help us to understand the wonder of forgiveness and the reality of it. Let me remind you of some of these figures of speech. First of all, in Psalm 103 and verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now the north and the south, they meet at the poles, but the east and the west, they never meet. And God has used that illustration to demonstrate to us the wonder of forgiveness. If your sin is forgiven, it's gone forever. It will not meet you again on judgment day, but it's removed forever and ever. Hezekiah, you may recall, in the serious illness, he tells us how God blessed him. In Isaiah 38, we're told this in verse 17. For peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul, delivered it from the pit of destruction, and thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Now, Hezekiah really thought he's going to die. In fact, Isaiah told him he's going to die, and he must set his house in order. Hezekiah turned to the wall. And he prayed earnestly to the Lord with tears. And the Lord heard him. And Isaiah had hardly got across the royal courtyard before the Lord turned him round and sent him back to Hezekiah and told him there's going to be a reprieve of 15 years. And Hezekiah tells us how the Lord blessed him in those circumstances. He had this clear 
indication that all his sins were gone. Though it was a trying experience and a trying illness, the Lord blessed him in those afflictions. This is how God works sometimes, in a very distinctive way. He blesses people when trouble comes in their lives, when illness afflicts them. It was so for Hezekiah. Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back ever after. He could praise God for that affliction, couldn't he? Because it did his soul good. But notice the figure of speech. God says that, that sin is put behind his back when it's forgiven. Something behind your back can't be seen. And God speaks to us regarding then the reality of forgiveness in this way. Then there's another figure in the prophecy of Micah, when the Minor Prophets, chapter 7, verse 19, Thou hast cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Well, it's very easy to lose things, even in shallow water, isn't it? Years ago, I lost a wedding ring in the sea. But if something was dropped in the very depths of the sea, you really would expect to be gone forever. When you think the deepest part of the sea is over seven miles deep, Mariana's Trench in the Pacific Ocean is gone for good. And that's how the Lord describes forgiveness. It's gone forever. But there's one more thing to say on this point, the reality of forgiveness. And that is, God says this in Hebrews chapter 8 and at verse 12, I will remember their sin no more. It's part of the new covenant blessing God describes for us. I will remember their sin no more. Now, why is that so significant? It doesn't say, I will forget their sin. We forget things, don't we? It just sort of slips from our minds somehow, or with the passing of time, years, and it's just sort of gone, perhaps. God doesn't forget people's sin in that sense. He never forgets in one sense. But it says, I will remember their sin no more. It's something deliberate on his part. He refuses to remember their sin no more. Why? Because the sins of those who are trusting in him have been laid upon the Saviour, upon the substitute for sinners. And therefore, justice will not allow him, as it were, to remember sin anymore. Out of infinite love and compassion, he has done this. In providing forgiveness of sins, Christ must suffer and provide a reconciliation for in, in the presence of God. Now, you may be wondering, but how can I know the reality of forgiveness for myself? How can I know personally that I am forgiven? You may have followed me so far, and you may perhaps feel encouraged by what I've said. You may perhaps see for yourself something of the reality of it, the wonder of it, as God himself describes it for us in his word. But this is the point that you're anxious about, maybe. I want to be forgiven. I want to know that I am forgiven. I realise this is a personal matter you're saying, perhaps, and I want to know for myself. How can I know? I was asked that question once by a man in Bedford Prison. He said, to my surprise, he said, I've been reading through Paul's letter to the Romans. And he said, how can anyone know they've been forgiven? I sensed that he was wanting really to know for himself. It wasn't just a kind of... Uh, a pertinent or impertinent or frivolous question. He really wanted to know. So I told him what I'm going to tell you now of a young Christian, a young man who came to know the Lord. And 
he was walking one day along the road carrying a heavy sack on his back. One of his old friends, who was uh, rather cynical about this professed conversion, he said to him, how do you know your sins are forgiven? Well, this young Christian continued walking, and without looking round, he allowed the sack to fall from his back. He turned to his old friend and he said, How do I know that sack has fallen from my back? Oh, that's easy, he said. The weight has gone. He said, That's exactly how it is for me. I know I've been forgiven because the weight has gone. It may be that you are conscious, particularly so at the present time, of the weight and the burden of your sin. Maybe it troubles you. Maybe when you try to go to sleep at night, all you can think about is your sins, the burden of them, the grief of them, the guilt of them, the fear of God's just punishment. You feel this conscious sense of the weight and burden of sin. You need carry this burden no longer because Christ is the great sin bearer. As the old hymn says, he took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He shed no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Christ did that for sinners, for guilty sinners like you and I. And those who call upon the Lord, as we shall see shortly, they will obtain the blessing. You see, when you come to see Christ and behold him by faith, you will know something of the relief that Christian knew in Pilgrim's Progress. He was carrying this burden until he got to the cross. It wasn't uh, until there, at that point in his uh, pilgrimage, did he find relief and deliverance. And Bunyan knew what he's talking about. He'd known those things for himself. He'd, he'd heard the testimonies of many other people also, how they had experienced forgiveness of sin. But there's another aspect to forgiveness that's important. When God forgives, it isn't just to say a kind of pronouncement I forgive you, there's a new relationship that is established between that forgiven sinner and the true God of heaven. The relationship has been broken by our sin, as we've seen already. We're in a far country that were spiritually alienated from the life of God. But when forgiveness takes effect, then a new relationship is established. George III was no doubt one of the, the greatest English kings and it would appear was a genuine Christian. And on one occasion he went to the royal stables and there was a certain young man there who was working there and the king took a particular interest in him. But on another occasion when the king went he noticed this young man wasn't there anymore. So he made inquiries. Apparently this young man had disgraced himself. He'd stolen some of the horse feed from the royal bins. And so he'd been, uh, he'd been uh, sent home, he'd been rejected, he's out of a job. And the king was concerned to hear about this, and he asked for the boy to be brought back so he'd have a word with him. And so the, the boy was sent for, and he felt thoroughly ashamed. Here he was in the presence of the, the king of England, and he'd been found guilty of stealing from him. And he was in tears and uh, feeling a sense of true remorse for what he had done. The king addressed him appropriately by reminding him of the seriousness of his sin, the way in which he had, had uh, betrayed the trust that had been reposed in him, and then kindly laying his hand upon his shoulder, he said to the lad, 
but I forgive you. And then turning to the head groom, he said, restore him to his place. Now that's exactly what God does when he forgives. There's a relationship that's restored, once broken, but Christ, the mediator, brings God and man together. So now the believing, uh, forgiven sinner is now walking with the Lord in peace and harmony and a sense of love and devotion because of what Christ has done on his behalf. Well, the wonder of it we sang in that opening hymn, Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like me his praise should sing. So we've noticed then the, that forgiveness is available and then the reality of forgiveness. But whom do these blessings really apply to? That's the point, isn't it? Well, notice how the verse is worded. Verse 5, For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. That's the first consideration. Those who call upon the Lord, they are the people who obtain this blessing. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 express the same truth. The Apostle Paul, as he went around preaching, he proclaimed this. And he, in that chapter, he's dealing with the fact that salvation is for Jew and Gentile. There's no distinction regarding these things. Whatever culture or background, the truth of the gospel is the same. For, he says, the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice the certainty of it. They shall be saved, those who call upon the Lord. Just as the text here reminds us, of the same truth, those that call upon the Lord. Let me give an example. The dying thief, Christ suffering on that cross of Calvary. Numbered with the transgressors, two thieves crucified either side of him. Both of them initially were mocking him, just like the rest of the crowd. But a change comes over one of them, and he starts to realize something of the seriousness of his condition. And he realizes something of the glory of the person who is suffering next to him, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And he realizes that this person who is suffering has a kingdom, and he wants to be part of that kingdom. He realized in some measure that he was the Savior. Lord, he says, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Was his prayer turned away? Don't forget how wicked he'd been. He'd been a great lawbreaker, both against God and man. But his prayer wasn't turned away. He called upon the Lord, and the Lord responded with grace and compassion. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see, this wonderful truth that where there's a sense of need, and there's a calling upon the Lord, the Lord hears and the Lord answers. It was like that for the publican, wasn't it? When he went up to the temple to pray, he could hardly look up, could he? He felt so guilty and ashamed. He smote upon his breast. That's where the trouble was. He was a guilty sinner. All he could say was, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went down to his house justified. He was forgiven. He went home with a sense of relief. The burden was gone. He was now justified in the sight of a holy God. He had found forgiveness. So here then is mercy for those who call upon the Lord. Is that true of you? Are you one of these people that out of sheer necessity 
you have to call upon the Lord. You know you're guilty. You know you cannot make amends for your sin. You cannot put things right. There's no undoing what's been done. But you therefore feel your need to call upon the Lord. You must. You must of necessity call upon the Lord. Furthermore, we could add this. This forgiveness is experienced for those who look to Christ. There's a lovely little phrase, isn't there, in Hebrews chapter 12, looking unto Jesus. In a sense, it summarizes all true Christian experience. Summarizing that one statement, that the way of salvation is looking unto Jesus. Remember in Isaiah 45, Christ is speaking through the prophet Isaiah when he says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Now that little phrase, all the ends of the earth, are interesting because it has two meanings in the scriptures. It does literally mean all nations in that sense, the ends of the earth. No nation is excluded from the blessings of the gospel. But it also is used by the psalmist when the psalmist felt to be himself at the ends of the earth. He felt to be so far off. He felt to be hopelessly lost, as it were. And from the ends of the earth, he says, I will cry unto thee. Maybe that's where you are tonight. You feel to be so distant from the Lord. You fear you'll never know the blessing of God's people. And though you might be feeling you're at the ends of the earth in that sense, yet there is forgiveness with God, even for those who feel to be afar off. Those who look to Christ will find forgiveness. This is wonderfully illustrated for us in that passage in the Old Testament regarding the Israelites being bitten by fiery serpents. You may recall that passage where some died as a result. They continued to sin against the Lord, murmuring against God, murmuring against God's servants and so on. And the Lord chastened them and punished them on that account. And God, in the midst of judgment, he showed mercy. He instructed Moses to make a shining brazen serpent, to hold it on a pole, hold it aloft for people to see. And those who looked, they lived. Christ makes application of that in John chapter 3, concerning himself, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So it's those who look, they live. Joseph Hart wrote quite a remarkable hymn, on this whole subject. Let me just read this verse to you. See the Lord of glory dying. See him gasping. Hear him crying. See his burdened bosom heave. Look, ye sinners, ye that hung him. Look how deep your sins have stung him. Dying sinners, look and live. That's the central thrust of the gospel, isn't it? Look and live. There's nothing left to do. All has been done to satisfaction in the person of Christ. And therefore, it's the guilty sinner who must look, that look of faith to Christ, will bring the blessing of forgiveness to your heart. And furthermore, those who obtain this forgiveness are those not only who call, those who look, but those who come. Now, in a sense, these are all uh, three different ways of saying the same thing. Those who come to Christ for salvation. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be as white as snow. 
It's a, found, it's a promise on a firm foundation, isn't it? There's no uncertainty about it. What God says will be performed. Sin will be forgiven for those who come to Christ for salvation. I read only recently something I'd never heard of before regarding Augustus Caesar, the famous Roman emperor. There was a certain pirate who'd been found guilty of uh, plundering his ships on the high seas and he ordered the pirate's arrest. He said, bring his head and lay it at my feet. That's the sort of thing that happened in those days. Now, when the pirate heard about this, when he got wind of what was going to be done, what do you think he did? You might think that he ran away. He did something rather different. He came to the very presence of Augustus Caesar and laid his head at his feet and asked for mercy. And Augustus, though he was a hardened man in many ways, he showed clemency and mercy to this repentant pirate. It's a wonderful application and illustration to us of, of the gospel. We come to no hard master. We come to no hardened emperor. We come to a gracious God who has shown himself merciful by sending his only begotten Son into the world. Those as it were, who lay themselves at his feet in repentance will find mercy. He's plenteous in mercy. He is willing and ready to forgive. You can't escape the force of this uh, verse, can you? It's so clear. It couldn't be more simply expressed to us regarding the wonder of God's love to sinners. It may be you've heard these things many times before. Year after year, perhaps, you've heard the message of grace in the gospel, but still you linger, perhaps. Still, perhaps, you've never come to Christ. You know, sometimes there are people who have heard the gospel, it's true of them, they've heard it all their lives, perhaps, but they've never yet come to find a point of rest in Christ. Is that you? Could that be true of you? Are you waiting for something extraordinary? Don't wait for something extraordinary because what you have before us tonight is an extraordinary gospel. There's no other way, no other gospel, no other message that can do your soul good but this simple, plain, but wonderful message of the kindness and grace of God in salvation. Well, you could say this is the old-fashioned gospel. Some would describe it in those terms perhaps, maybe disparagingly, but we're not ashamed of that because there's only one gospel. This is the same gospel that was preached in this chapel when it was first erected in 1895 for the fruitful ministry of John Wren. This is the same gospel that was proclaimed by George Whitfield to tens of thousands. The same gospel that the apostles preached. The same gospel that was known in essence, even in the Garden of Eden, the promise of the seed of the woman who come to bruise or crush the head of the serpent. It was as basic as that, but it was the essence of the gospel. The deliverer in time would come. So it's old-fashioned all right, isn't it? In fact, you, you could even say it's old, more old-fashioned than that because it goes back to a never-ending eternity in the covenant of God's grace. He purposed and planned these things for a vast number, vast millions of the human race. They might find mercy in his beloved Son. Well, this then is the the message of grace God has made known to us in his word. We have history on our side, and more importantly, we have the word of God on our side in proclaiming these things. Let us hold these things fast. 
Let us embrace these things. And if you've never known the blessing of these things for yourself, you must seek after this Saviour. Only in coming to him, in true repentance, bowing the knee before him, will you find this so great salvation. The only gospel we can own sets Jesus Christ upon the throne. Proclaim salvation full and free, obtained on Calvary's rugged tree. Amen.